find a seat. A little busier at 8 a.m. this week, huh? Like we got an extra hour of sleep last night or something. Uh, I posted this on my social media pages this week, um, this, uh, this, this meme that said, uh, this means your pastor gets to preach for an extra hour this Sunday, right? And uh, there's one person in our church who shall remain nameless who promised that if I worked that into the sermon, he would volunteer to serve in Cross Kids. And so uh, you know who you are. There it is. I dropped that in. I'm not going to single you out today. Uh, But as a segue, um, this this month, we are making a concentrated effort to build up our Cross Kids ministry. It's been a big year of transition for our church family. We've had a lot of key families, military families, some of whom have moved on. And we are facing a little bit of a deficit in our Cross Kids ministry, uh, particularly at the 1130 worship gathering, but for the eight o'clock people, we're working to add elementary cross kids for this worship gathering time beginning in January as well. Um, I sent this out in my weekly email this past Sunday, or this past Friday. Um, uh, About 80% of people make a profession of faith in Jesus before they turn 18 years old. Do you need to know anything else? Uh, What's happening behind those walls right there is the most important mission field we have in this building every single week. I want us to get uncomfortable about the fact that our children who are being bombarded by a a massively secularized culture that is trying to squeeze God out of every realm, I want us to get uncomfortable about the fact that they are underserved back there right now. That should burden us. That should make us upset. And we should want to be provoked to do something about this. A church our size, just a little bit of a gentle push for us at the front end of this morning, a church our size should never struggle to serve our kids' ministry. Um, if we are so eager um, to see the gospel preached and see disciples be made, that absolutely starts with the children that the Lord has entrusted to us. Amen. Um, so I, I'm just going to try to use every bit of weight and leverage I have this month to continue provoking us to good works uh, by serving the next generation generation with the message of the gospel. So uh, that being said, on to the book of James. If you're new with this, my name's Taylor, serve here at Cross's lead pastor, and uh, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bible. James chapter 2 is where we're going to be together this morning, looking at verses 14 through 26. We've been working through the book of James verse by verse for the better part of the last couple of months, and um, we're just going to continue this morning by picking up where we left off last week. Um, What was this past Tuesday? Trick question. October 31st. Reformation Day. That's right. You're in church. That's the right answer. So um, October 31st was the 506th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, which is one of the most pivotal events, not just in the history of the church, but one of the most pivotal events in all of human history. One of the key leaders of the Protestant Reformation was uh, the great reformer from Germany, Martin Luther. He was born in 1483, and he was heavily shaped by medieval theology and the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, which at that period of time in history uh, placed a very heavy emphasis on God's judgments and the necessity of doing good works in order to earn salvation. And so there were a number of good works that were constantly being pushed forward as uh, being salvific, things like doing penance and receiving sacraments, adoring relics, making pilgrimages to Rome, or singing in mass. All of these things could be seen as good works that you were building up in order to gain eternal life. But it's while he was lecturing through the book of Romans that uh, Martin Luther began to see that salvation does not come as the result of our good works. We are justified, Luther came to realize, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And he began to teach and to preach this message in spite of the hostile opposition and disapproval of the Catholic Church. 
And the straw that really broke the camel's back for Luther in terms of the corrupt practices of the Catholic Church at that time was the practice of selling indulgences. In uh, Luther's context, there was a Dominican monk named Johann Tetzel who was especially devious in this practice. He would come up with all these elaborate lies about how purchasing indulgences could shorten your time in purgatory, or you could even relieve uh, a dead ancestor who had already gone on before you of of their time in purgatory. And so um, originally uh, written in Latin on October 30, first, 1517, Luther went and knocked on a door not to get, this is a good pastor joke, not to get 95 Reese's, you see where I'm going with this, but to nail 95 theses, which is, I think, a good reason to eat 95 Reese's every year on the 31st. He nails these to the Castle Door Church in Wittenberg, and uh, these were a clear exposition of the message of the gospel, and they were also an indictment of the lies and the heresies that were being perpetuated by the Catholic Church at that time. And so these were very quickly translated into various languages, and man, like a wildfire, the gospel of Jesus Christ began to ignite all across Europe. And people were struck to their hearts with hope at the realization that they were not justified and saved by all of their good works and by participating in all of these burdensome, corrupt practices. They were justified, they came to understand, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And we remember all of this through what we know now today as the five solas. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and according to the word of God alone. And this is a message that we continue to preach today. And so, man, we have so much to be thankful for when it comes to men like Martin Luther. But as I mentioned early on in this message series, because of all of the corruption of works that Luther saw during his time, he actually had a really difficult time with the book of James. Uh, As he read the book of James, all he could think about were the corrupt works and the corrupt practices that he saw happening around him. And it's uh, Luther didn't cut the book of James out of his Bible, uh, but what he did do in his German Bible is he took the book of James and he moved it to the very back of the New Testament. He he struggled to believe this this book that we've studied the last couple months that, that has such a heavy emphasis on doing and a heavy emphasis on works. He he struggled to reconcile this with the doctrine of justification by faith alone. He actually went on to say this about the book of James and the passage we're gonna look at this morning. Luther said, many have rightly labored to reconcile James and Paul, but not with real success. And this was Luther's issue here. He said, these are at odds. Faith justifies, that's Romans three. Faith does not justify, that's James two. If there is anyone who can bring these into harmony with one another, I will set my hat on him and let him scold me as a fool. So with all due respect to Martin Luther and everything we have to be thankful for, our goal here of the next half hour church is to try to be wearing Luther's hat. We want to wear Luther's hat. We want to see that uh, the preaching of justification by faith alone and the necessity of works in our relationship with Christ, these two truths are not contradictory to one another. These two truths are complementary to one another. The passage we're going to look at in James this morning, this is really the, the crux of the whole book right here. That This is the, the most famous passage in the book of James, and this is one of the most famous passages in the entire Bible. And what this message shows us this morning, rightly understood, is this. True saving faith in Jesus Christ results in a life of obedience to him. True saving faith in Jesus Christ results in a life of obedience to him. James is not contradictory to the words of the Apostle Paul. We'll see this morning, James is complementary to the words of the Apostle Paul. 
Because while you and I are not saved by our works, Scripture is clear you and I are saved for good works because faith without faith, or faith without works, is no faith at all. So from James chapter 2, let's read beginning with verses 14 through 17. James asks a question, a rhetorical question to start this section out. He says, what good is it, my brothers? If someone says, everybody say says. That's an important word here. If somebody says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So we see three very key truths about faith without works this morning as we work through these 13 verses. First, James shows us in verses 14 through 17, the faith without works is delusional. Faith without works is an utterly delusional faith. You know, part of why Martin Luther struggled with James wasn't just because of the emphasis on good works. He really believed that the book of James was somehow in competition and contradictory to other parts of Scripture. And a part of why Luther came to that conclusion is because he misunderstood the intent of what James was actually saying. You know, resolving the tension between the book of Romans and the book of James is really pretty easy if you just pay close attention to two words that we find here in verse 14. James asked two rhetorical questions at the beginning of this passage. What good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So those, those two words right there, says and the word that, what James shows us here is we're actually dealing in two completely different categories of faith. What James is showing here is that there is a kind of faith where you verbally profess, hey, I belong to Jesus, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ, but that profession is in no way substantiated by a life of good works, by a life of obedience, and then there is the faith that results in good works and obedience according to the word of God. And so what James is showing us here this morning is that there is a true kind of faith that automatically results in an overflow of good works, and then there is a false kind of faith where you're kind of Christian in name only. And, and that's the piece of this that Luther was, was really missing. There are some who claim to have a kind of faith that allows you to just say, hey, I'm a Christian, even if your life ha in no way, shape, or form backs up the profession that you make. And Luther knew this. Luther knew that you can't have faith without works. This was at the introduction of his Romans commentary. He said, faith is a busy, active, mighty thing. It is impossible for it to not be doing good things incessantly. So Luther understood, he misunderstood James, but he understood that true saving faith results in a life of obedience to Christ. So he wasn't actually in disagreement with James, he was misunderstanding the intention of what James is saying. Now, I want you to turn with me in your Bible for just a moment to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm, we're going to read in just a second, verses 8 through 10. And I want us to look at this text together this morning, because let's, let's see what the Apostle Paul actually has to say about works what is the relationship between grace and, and faith and works and what role these play in the life of the believer? So Ephesians 2, let's read verses 9 and or excuse me, 8 through 10. Paul writes this, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. So there it is, right? By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, meaning it's not the result of your works. 
This is not your undoing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So he explicitly says here, like, we are not saved as the result of our works so that no one may boast. But then listen to this. This is the other side of the gospel. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should, walk, we should walk in him. And so this is how scripture lays out for us the relationship between grace and faith and works. You and I are not saved by our works. We are saved by grace through faith. But Paul shows us here, if you are truly saved by grace through faith, the overflow will be a life of good works. So you are not saved by your works, but you are saved for your works. We are not, as followers of Jesus Christ, as we do good works, we're not working for our salvation. We are working from our salvation. We're not trying to earn a position. We have already received a position, and it's from that position that we follow Christ in obedience according to his word. True salvation is not the result of works, but true salvation will result in works. Let me say that one more time this morning because it's so important that we get the order of this right. True salvation is not the result of works, but true salvation will result in works. And that this is what that means for us as followers of Christ. If you're truly a follower of Jesus, you will want to do what God's word commands and you will want to avoid what God's word forbids. We desire to follow Jesus in obedience. You know, the, the example that James gives us here is verses 15 and 16. That this is the picture that he paints for us here. It's telling someone in need, you know, so there's someone who's poorly clothed, they don't have food, they don't have what they need. And, and James is, is the example he gives here. It's like, hey, imagine us looking that person in the face and saying, hey, be warmed and be filled. T tell them like while they're going through hunger, like, hey, just don't feel hungry anymore. Don't, don't do this. And he's saying, man, that, that's, that's not real faith. That's not putting our faith into action. Like that's not good work that's, that's, that's coming from our position and who we are in Jesus Christ. Here's the modern day equivalent of that type of example. Somebody shares an incredible need with us and what's our response? I'll pray for you. Can't pay their bills, have no food on their table. We have the means to help them. I'll pray for you. And then maybe we don't even pray for them. Like maybe we get too busy and maybe we just kind of go about our lives and we, we just tell our men, somebody should do something. The church should do something about this. Forgetting that you're the church. I'm the church. We are the church. Like we are the ones that the Lord has placed in their path in that moment. And whenever we have the means, we have the ability to serve others and to help them and to obey the word of God and God places them in our path and we choose not to do this. James shows us this could be evidence of dead faith. That that's utterly delusional to live a, a, in a place where we think like, hey, I can just say that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and not actually have any actions to back that up and think that I'm totally good before the Lord. Um, I, could, I took my boys um, camping a couple weeks ago. They were on fall break. Went out to Hunting Island. It's one of our favorite spots to go. And uh, we got a camp, primitive campsite right up there on the beach. It's, it's like the best night of sleep you can possibly have camping with the ocean rolling in the background. It's just, it's incredible. And so um, we, we had a blast, man. We uh, gr opened fire, grilled out, you know, uh, hot dogs and s'mores and stuff at night. And then I got up and we fried up, uh, man, in the cast iron skillet, it was cinnamon rolls and bacon and eggs in the morning. We just, we had a blast. We went hiking up and down the beach and, and they were just, it's just a place where they're free to be boys, right? But um, we very quickly, 
quickly, uh, four, four men, uh, we burned through all of our provisions, right? And um, so it came time for our trip to end and we were eager to go back home, but then I hop in my truck and my truck won't start. And I'm like, oh boy. And, and, and as uh, my truck won't start, it dawned on me the night before when I had started it and kind of moved it a little bit, there was just like a slight delay uh, when I was starting. It's something I didn't think about much at the beginning, but then I, I quickly, I pulled up my onboard computer and I, I was able to see, man, my battery's dead. And then I realized, um, you know, uh, that one of the interior lights had somehow been left on the night before. Maybe a door wasn't shut the whole way. And I'm just thinking, oh, okay, like, uh, you know, probably just died as a result of this. And so I've I got to be that guy because my jumper cables are in Emily's van and I have a, a backup jumper, but it didn't have enough juice to give my truck the charge it needed. Um, and so what you do in that moment is you find somebody who drives a 19 1998 Toyota 4Runner, and that's exactly who I found. You can always trust that guy, and because um, those last forever, I'm sure he's jumped off a million cars before, and uh, so he gets us the help that we need. And there was part of me that was like, okay, um, you know, I, I think this was just the result of this door being left overnight. Maybe my battery just needed a charge, and it's going to be good. So through the weekend, I left up that dash computer, and I was just kind of watching my battery voltage before I started it and while it was running it. And I thought, you know, hey, I think I might be good here. But sure enough, just a couple days later, Monday morning, I go to start my truck and it barely turns over. And so in that moment, I'm like, hey, battery's done, right? Like this thing's, it's got to go. I've got to swap it out. I'm not even going to turn it off. I'm just going to go straight to, you know, advance and, and get the battery replaced. And, and, and so here, here's what's, what would have been foolish of me. It's just to continue trying to, to drive my truck, just thinking, you know what? Uh, I, I can just give it another jump here. I can just give it another jump here. And you, you can jump a battery. I mean, you can keep it going for an extended period of time, but eventually it doesn't change the fact that that battery has to be completely swapped out. And, and so here, here's the wrong way to understand the argument that James is making in this passage this morning. You, you might be sitting here thinking like, okay, well, I have faith, so what I kind of need to do to my faith is I, I just need to, to jumpstart that with some works. I just need to juice it up with some works. And, and James isn't saying that you just need to add works to your faith. What James is saying, no, you, you need an altogether different kind of faith. You, you have a dead faith and you need a, a living faith. It's not just that we add good works to our dead profession of faith. What we have to have an entirely new kind of faith, a faith that is evidenced by obedience to Jesus Christ. We're living kind of in a cultural moment in the church where um, that there has been in a lot of different ways, and this isn't like a left or a right thing. You, you sort of see this on, on both sides of the spectrum where, where we've kind of elevated like love for God, love for Jesus, which we talked about last week. That's the first and second greatest commandment, right? Amen to that. But, but the struggle is our, the way we're using the word love looks a lot more like the way the world uses it rather than the way the Bible actually defines it. And, and so it's like, hey, I, I can just say I love God, I can say I love Jesus, and Christianity is kind of holiness optional, obedience optional, righteousness optional. We call those things Pharisaic and legalistic and fundamentalist, and those are bad things, and we're going to avoid those things. And, and we do all that to make ourselves feel better about the fact that we don't have true faith. And, and so we, we have to be so, so careful not to guard against this, because how does the Bible actually define love for God and love for Jesus? This is what Jesus says in John 14, that it means to love him. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you truly love the Lord, if you truly love your neighbor as yourself, you demonstrate love for the Lord, you demonstrate love for your neighbor by loving Jesus, and loving Jesus means following his word and living according to his word. We've worked through just this popular phrase of the last several weeks, oftentimes this pithy saying we'll say about Christianity, it's not a religion, 
It's a relationship. It's not just about a bunch of do's and don'ts, but that's, that's hard to reconcile with the fact that the Bible has a lot of do's and don'ts. And so it's more accurate to say, instead of it's not a religion, it's a relationship, it's more accurate to say it's a religion of relationship. Love Jesus, love people, yes and amen, but loving Jesus means loving his word and keeping his commandments. True love for Jesus and others is going to be evidenced by obedience to his word. Church, faith without works is dead. It's an utterly delusional faith to to just say that you follow Jesus and not have any sort of lifestyle to back that up. It's not enough to just know sound doctrine and to know the right answers. This is what James goes on to say in verses 18 and 19. He says, but someone will say, which was a popular philosophical saying of the day. People like to just sit and talk about stuff all day. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. But listen to this. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. So faith without works isn't just delusional. Second James shows us this morning, faith without works is demonic. It is a demonic faith. See, James isn't just talking about adding works to faith. He's talking about getting an entirely different kind of faith, a living faith. Show me your faith without works. That's a false profession. And I'll show you my faith by my works. That's a true profession. Church, it's not enough to know the Bible. It's not enough to know sound doctrine. It's not enough to know good theology. It's not enough to know what all the popular podcasters and writers and bloggers and everybody is saying. It's not enough just to have the right information. We can memorize all of the creeds and the confessions and the catechisms that we want. And just because we've memorized some things in our heads and can recite them with our mouths, it doesn't mean that we've believed it in our hearts. And that's what James is speaking to here. He says in verse 19, he says, you believe that God is one and and you do well with this. You remember the context of the book of James? He's writing to a predominantly Jewish audience and so he's referencing here what was known among the Jewish people as the Shema. This was really a a statement of faith, a profession of faith. You find it in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So this was an affirmation of monotheism, a belief in one God. But and, and, and you know some commentators have actually looked at this whenever James says you do well, and they've suggested that he's actually using sarcasm here. Like if he's writing to them, he's saying, "Hey, you believe that God is one? It's like, oh, oh, good for you. Even the demons believe that. Like th- there's fundamentally nothing different about what we believe. Man, even Satan knows that God is one. Even the demons believe that God I- is one. It's it's not enough just to know it in your head." It's not enough to just memorize it. It's not just enough to profess it with our mouths and and to say these words with our lips. True faith in Jesus Christ, it's not just intellectual affirmation of some statements. And we have to be on guard against this. And I heard this incredibly uh, powerful testimony this past week. Uh, Pastor uh, Garrett Kell, he's up in Virginia. Just this extraordinary testimony of somebody who tried for a long time to live in that space where he kind of had a foot in the world and a foot in the church. And so um, he talked in this interview about how he was really good at wearing masks. He had you know, one mask for when he was at church, and then he had a different mask for when he was in the world. And then about his junior year of college, he, he said he had, he had three female roommates. He had a live-in girlfriend, and um, he was just drinking a lot, partying a lot, doing drugs. And so he had a friend who came to visit him, and his friend comes to visit him. And he's like, hey, man, I've got, I've got beer for you. I've got a bag of weed for you. Here's this girl that I want you to get to know. And he just talked about how his friend walked in, and just very calmly, he shut the door, 
and he sat down and he said, Garrett, man, I, you're, you're my friend. Appreciate what, what you're trying to do here and stuff. He said, but I need you to hear me tell you that um, I'm following Jesus now and, and that's no longer my life. And, and Garrett like kind of thought he was joking, you know, for a little bit, but the, and, and it, he just, he was like, man, I'm, I'm really serious about this. And he said, and I came here today to tell you that Jesus really loves you too. And, and so just kind of through this friend's gentle confrontation of the space that he was in in life, just as this story of how he was radically transformed by the gospel. Again, he's a pastor again today. And, and where he was living is where I fear so many of you may be trying to live today. Like, man, you, you, you'll come Sunday morning and you'll read the verses, you'll sing the songs, we'll give, we'll serve, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of plug and play and do our thing over here. And so, so our Sunday looks like it's marked outwardly by worship, but man, as soon as we leave this place, like we're just living our lives in the world. And James is showing us here, like to, to do that, that is the same level of faith that a demon has. There, there's fundamentally no difference here. A.W. Tozer, we could probably just go take a nap on this one today. Um, he had this to say, he said, the devil is a better theologian than any of us and is a devil still. Church, it's not enough to know it in your head. It's not enough to say it with your mouth. Have you believed these things in your heart? You know, I think a modern day equivalent, I, I grew up in um, uh, kind of a revivalist Baptist type culture and we were really, really big in the church that I was growing up in on, on getting people to say the prayer, repeat the prayer, right? Many of you know what I'm talking about here. And as you wanted to become a follower of Jesus, it was just kind of, hey, repeat these words. And, and depending on the church you came up in, you might walk an aisle or um, you might fill out a card, you might raise a hand. And, and listen, we, we've done some of those things here before. Too. I'm, not, I'm not vilifying the practice in, in any way, shape, or form. But if, if we're not careful, what ends up happening is, is somebody will point back to that moment. They'll point back to that experience. 20 years later, they're not walking with Jesus, living their life just like the rest of the world, no desire to be with the church, no desire to be in God's word, no desire to walk in holiness and in righteousness. But if you ask them, are you a Christian? They'll say yes. And you ask them their foundation for this. The response is, yeah, well, when I was six, I prayed this prayer. And, and that's exactly what James is talking about here. Like, man, it's, it's, it's not enough. I mean, they, they had a sound profession. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Like, amen. Like, that's a sound profession. But church, the profession of faith does not automatically mean the possession of faith. It is one thing to know it in our heads. It's another thing to have it memorized. It's another thing to have it, be able to recite it. Have you believed it in your heart? It's a question I ask our church all the time if you're new to us. Have you hung the hopes of your soul on the finished work of Jesus Christ? Have you hung the hopes of your soul on the finished work of Jesus Christ? This is what I see when I read the Gospels. Man, when people met Jesus, they walked away different. Their lives were radically changed. If you came to Jesus blind, you walked away seeing. If you came to Jesus lame, you walked away walking. If someone came to Jesus greedy, they walked away generous. If someone came to Jesus adulterous, they walked away pure. If Jesus came to someone when they were dead, he was like, nope, not anymore. You better knock that off. Get up. When people encounter Jesus, they're different. Have you hung the hopes of your soul on the finished work of Jesus Christ? Has he changed your life? Has he transformed your life? Does your profession of faith match the practice in your life? Are you a Sunday only Christian? Is it all good for you here in this one hour? Do you live your life completely different when you walk outside of these doors? James warns us this morning, we may only have a demonic faith. 
if we profess Jesus with our mouths, but we don't practice Jesus in our lives. Church, please don't miss this this morning. Regardless of what's being taught in different circles today, there's, there's not like an alternative version of Christianity in the Bible where you get Jesus and still get to keep all your sin. There's not a version of Christianity in the Bible where you, you get like eternal life and you, you just get to keep living your life like the rest of the world. We have to be on guard against this. We need an altogether new faith, a living faith. James closes out this section, verses 20 through 26. He, he asks again, he says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him. Everybody say counted. This is really important. I'm gonna come back to that in just a second. It was counted to him as righteousness and he was called, get this, he was called a friend of God. What a title, right? He was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So James warns us here this morning, faith without works is delusional. Second, he shows us that faith without works is demonic. And third and finally, he's repeated it twice today, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. James just hammers the point home here. Believing that we have been saved without any evidence of good works in our lives it is a useless faith that paints us out to be very foolish people. We're self-deceived is what James said earlier in this letter. We're like people like, man, we look in the mirror and then we walk away and completely forget what we looked like. And so he just continues driving this forward home. And so he gives us two examples here of faith being evidenced by works. And he, two, two very pol like polar opposite types of examples. He gives the example of Abraham and he gives the example of Rahab. And he asked the question in verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works? Now, this again was part of Luther's struggle and tension because Romans chapter four says that Abraham was justified by faith. And, and so that was just one of those places. Luther felt like there was just this irreconcilable difference between the words of Paul and the words of James. So again, we asked this morning, like, is that not a contradiction? It, it says in Ephesians, it says in Romans, we're saved by grace through faith. And yet here it says that Abraham was justified by works. So, so what do we do with this? Let me just try to, try to make this really, really simple for us this morning. James and Paul have a different aim in the way they use the term justify. That they're talking about two slightly different things. Now they're looking at the same subject, which is our salvation, but they're coming at it from two different angles. So try to follow with me on, on this this morning. Paul uses justify. He uses the word justify Paul uses it to show that Abraham's profession of faith, or excuse me, Paul uses justify to show uh, that, uh, that Paul's, I'm gonna get it this morning, you guys. I'm gonna get it, I promise. Got the extra hour of sleep and everything. Paul uses it to show that Abraham was justified through a profession of faith. James uses it to show that Abraham's profession of faith was justified by the presence of works. You see what I'm saying this morning? Like it's, I know I really fumbled it the, the first time. Let me say it one more time since, in case I, I lost you there. 
Paul uses justify to show that Abraham was justified through his profession of faith. James uses it to show that Abraham's profession of faith was justified by the presence of works. So he's, he's really speaking to the exact same subject. They're just speaking at it from different angles. So verse 22, faith was active on the part of Abraham. That's, that's the evidence that it was true faith. It was active. He went up the mountain and he offered his son Isaac as the sacrifice as the Lord had commanded him. And so he shows that and it was completed, he said, by his works. And so that word completed really speaks to the maturity of faith. And so that's the evidence of true saving faith is that we actively do, we actively obey what it is that the Lord has called us to do. And then he gives us this polar opposite example of Rahab. And and man, this would be such good news for us this morning. So you've got all the way on this side, you've got Abraham who was the patriarch and then you've got over here Rahab who was a prostitute. Now, Abraham seems like a likely example for a predominantly Jewish audience, right? This father Abraham, how many sons did he have? Many. <laughs> many sons had father Abraham. I'm one of them, so there's, just, there's a whole song and everything. <laughs> that seems like a likely example. Like, he, man, he's like the hero of the people, right? And then, then here's Rahab. She's a prostitute. And what's Rahab's story? If you go to Joshua chapter two, Joshua has sent spies into the land and they come into her home, and she protects them. When, when they come looking for the spies to snuff them out, she keeps them hidden, and she goes to these spies. She's like, I've heard about your God. Heard about what he did in the wilderness. Everybody around here is freaking out because we know about him, but I believe in him. And what was the evidence of her belief? She preserved the spies. It was active, it was completed, it was substantiated by the presence of good work. So it wasn't the good work that that saved Abraham. It wasn't the good work that saved Rahab. Those were evidences that they had true faith. That's why it says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. I love this. Uh, That word counted, this is speaking to uh, the doctrine of what we call imputation. And this is the doctrine of imputation in a nutshell. What it tells us is God thinks of the righteousness of Christ as belonging to me. It's like, it's not my righteousness. It's not my holiness. It's not my obedience. It's not my good works. But through faith in Jesus Christ, what I'm confessing to the Lord is, I can't do it myself, but praise God, Jesus did it for me. And so my faith isn't in what I do. My faith is in what Jesus Christ has done for me. So Abraham believed God and God imputed the righteousness to him. God imputes righteousness to us through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what this means for you today, is that in spite of our sin, when we stand before God, God will not just see our sin, God will see the perfection of his son, Jesus. And that is true if you're in Christ. So we don't have to look at our good works and say, man, did I do enough? Am I doing enough? Am I, am I smart enough? Am I reading enough? Am I learning enough? You can get all of that right and completely miss Jesus. You can be in church, but you can be far from Jesus Christ. And I don't want that for you. You know, part of why this passage resonates so much with me this morning and, and testimonies like Garrett's resonate with me is because, man, if, if you guys know me, some of you know this, like, man, Garrett's story is my story. Like, that's my testimony. Like, this, this period of life I went through that I was firmly convinced I could play both games. I can, I can follow Jesus, but I can also have the best parts of, of the world. And I was saying on the one hand, like I'm pursuing a call of God in my life and I'm pursuing ministry, but I got real good at wearing masks and being one person over here that was very different from the person over here. And it all just kind of came to a head uh, when I was about 19 years old. And I distinctly remember a Sunday morning, guys, 
Here we go. Use it against me. I distinctly remember a Sunday morning when I got up and I led worship. I was a worship leader before I was doing this. And I led worship with a hangover. And God just very, very graciously, very gently, but very abruptly brought some discipline into my life. Some of it through the words of other people, some of it just through my own recognition by his Holy Spirit within me. And so I, I say this once a year, and, and I know you, some of you think it's just super judgmental, that's why I share my story first. I say this once a year because as heavy as it is, I, I think some of you may need to hear it today. You're gonna have to go through the same realization that I went through 16, 17 years ago, and so, so hard, but please know I'm sharing this with you in love today. This is where some of you are gonna have to do. Some of you are going to have to come to the place where you realize you're not actually a Christian so that you can finally become one. That's hard. People who meet Jesus walk away different. People who meet Jesus don't keep living their life like the rest of the world. We had this powerful night of prayer and worship this past Sunday night. 100, 150 people came in here together. It's the loudest I've ever heard this room for two hours. Man, we, we, we heard powerful testimonies of people whose lives have been radically transformed by the gospel over the course of, of the last year. In church, for two hours, man, those of you who are here, you know this, man, we, we just begged God to move. We just beg God to keep moving. We, we just beg God. Like, I beg the Lord just for a baptism video every Sunday, right? I mean, I, I know we're, we're kind of in this place. This is gentle rebuke this morning. Man, if you are so focused on the fact that we don't have enough parking, we don't have enough kids, we change communion, that you can't get excited about people meeting Jesus Christ and their lives being transformed, this is not the church for you. Like, I'll just make it easy for you today. If you're more concerned about the superficial things and the challenges that are created that you miss, lives are being radically transformed by the gospel, this is not the place for you. There are plenty of dead churches in this community. Like, you, feel free. Feel free, like we are eager to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. We are eager to celebrate new life in Jesus Christ. We will not shy away from letting people boldly declare the transformation that's come through Jesus. And so, so here's my, my two challenges for us as we close out together this morning. And the really simple one is built into the other. Here's our two challenges in light of James 2 today. First challenge is this, put your faith in the work of Christ. Hang the hopes of your soul on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Renounce your ability to do it yourself. Renounce your ability and your confidence and all your religious doing and all your church attending. All this is important. If we love him, we will keep his commandments. But your confidence in salvation is not in everything that you're doing for God. It's in everything that God has done for you through his son, Jesus Christ. Put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Be baptized next week. Be, be, celebrate new life in Jesus. Put your faith in the work of Christ. And if you're a follower of Jesus, put your faith to work for Christ. Put your faith to work for Christ. Church, we, we were not save, saved to sit. We were saved to serve. Christ has done all things for us so that we can be free to do what he has called us to do for him. Put your faith in the work of Christ and then put your faith to work for Christ. That is the natural overflow. That is faith that works. We are not saved by our works, but we are saved for works. And it's springing off of the finished work of Jesus Christ for us that we throw ourselves in a life of service and devotion for him. So you bow your heads with me as we close this morning.